0: This is Shack Talk, presented by Eskimo Ice Fishing Gear and hosted by Kyle Agri and Anthony Kleinwachter. Turn up your speakers,
1: grab your gear, and hit the ice with us as we talk ice fishing. Come on in, grab a bucket. We are talking ice fishing. Welcome to Shack Talk Podcast. Kyle Agree with Anthony Kleinwachter. We are your hosts. We're excited to be back and talking ice fishing again. Anthony, uh, that first episode of the season was a good one. And, uh, you know, it's always good to get the bugs kind of worked out and get back in the groove of things. It's great to be here for episode two.
2: Yeah, really excited to be back. Um, Obviously, it's uh, fun talking ice fishing. I keep hearing a few more uh, people maybe tiptoeing out on the ice, testing things out. Hopefully, by the time we record this next podcast, Episode 3, maybe we'll have some fish stories to be able to share back and forth. I've got the itch, that's for sure.
1: It is, you know, and you watch some of those folks that are going out on the the areas that have safe ice. And that's the key, right? With all for folks to know is, you know, don't push it too far too fast. But there are some areas throughout the ice fishing land here across the upper Midwest where, you know, we're starting to see five, six inches of ice on some of the smaller, more shallow bodies of water. And that's good. That's that's really good to be able to see that and, and folks are starting to tiptoe out as you said. And uh it's, it's day by day. I mean, it's growing. Uh, the ice is, is adding in, in some areas, although our weather lately has been a little bit on the warm side. But I know that, that those warm temps only come around for a couple hours during the day.
2: Yeah, they come around for a little bit during the day. I know a big concern for some of the bigger bodies of water is wind. You know they're talking wind again this week. And so hopefully, you know, they can get past that and start forming up that sheet of ice and we can get some more cool temps to really make things uh, solid up over, the, over the body of water and make sure that we, you know, have good ice, good clear ice. Hopefully the precipitation stays out of the forecast and we don't have to worry about that messing up our ice until we get the, a good base. But it's only a matter of days now.
1: It is, it is, it is. And thank you to all of our listeners, to our followers. We so appreciate all the feedback, all of the comments, all of the encouragement. Uh, after episode one here is where we're kicking off season five. Thank you to those of you who have listened along and, and shared that feedback. One in particular, Anthony, I wanted to share with you. I want to get your take on it because uh, I think it's probably a sentiment that's out there amongst many of the the anglers and outdoor enthusiasts that that listen and follow along. And uh, this particular individual complimented the, the first episode of the podcast, particularly pointed out the point in that podcast where we talked about encouraging new enthusiasts into the sport of ice angling and, and welcoming them, teaching them, which I'm in full agreement. And we, we were, as we talked about it, this individual was as well, his hesitation, his hesitation was this. He had kind of experienced a few different times out on the ice where people had left garbage, left a mess behind where he had been at a public access where someone had done the same thing, you know, a a waterfall production area out hunting just has has seen that in a couple different occasions and it left a bad taste in his mouth, kind of looking to get what our take was on that. So, uh, Yeah,
2: I think it goes to say for anyone that's, you know, new to the outdoors, new to fishing is, you know, be, be respectful, Um, you know, treat, treat the outdoors. Like it's your backyard. You don't want to leave it a mess. Um, You want to make sure that it's clean. I always, you know, try to make things cleaner than when I got there. So if I see somebody else's garbage, I'm not going to pile onto that. I'm going to take it with me and clean it up. Um, you know, just make sure that you know some of those unwritten rules of fishing in the outdoors. I mean, take care of it. It's a it's a limited resource, and we want to respect it.
1: Yeah, I agree a hundred percent, Anthony. And and you know, to your point, picking up something that that you find on the ice, it's hard to say, right? Maybe it was dark when they picked up and they left that one water bottle there and they missed it. They intended to pick it up. So as you go by, grab it, pick it up, take it off with you. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. And and I think it's something that we all need to to kind of just pay a little more intention, uh, attention to and be intentional about. As anglers, it, we go out into the outdoors, hunters, anglers, whatever. I mean, hikers, cross-country skiers, whatever it is, right? Just to to be respectful, uh, as you said, and, and make sure that we're... Uh, We're thinking about the next person who might come along and use that resource and and wanting their experience to be as good as as ours was.
2: Yeah, and I think it goes to say, too, I mean – not only the resource, but treat others, you know, as you would want to be treated, Um, you know, be respectful of people when they're out on the ice, don't go buzzing by them in your vehicle or your snowmobile when you're fishing, Um, you know, keep a distance, don't go set up right next to somebody's house or holes, Um, it's a big lake, I mean, those are always those hot spots where people are trying to get in and get, get uh, get their fishing in, but you know, make sure that you're being
1: careful and being respectful of those things as well. I would agree, I'd agree, and thank you again, uh, to those of you who've sent that feedback, we appreciate it. We we listen. We we read every one of those comments, every one of those uh, those suggestions or ideas that you share with us. We we certainly appreciate them a, a great deal. Anthony, we have a fantastic lineup. We're going to jump in here uh, in just a few seconds with one of the uh, one of the segments that's new for this year—a species segment. We're going to talk about bluegills, bluegills, and sunfish, and so we're just going to do a deep dive into into everything. Sunfish and bluegill. We are also going to uh, we're, we're going to hear one of the the pre-recorded interviews we did at the end of last season. You know, last last episode, we we listened to Tyler and his experience when he broke through the ice, being out with his son on a derby. And this time, we're gonna we're gonna hear from another gentleman, Keith Horning. And and Keith is a Michigan angler. He was out and uh, he was out with a buddy. A lot of similar things in his experience, but unique in in its own right as well. Uh, Again, just emphasizing the point of safety, the point of being careful when we're out there on the ice, no matter what time of the year it is. So we're going to have that as one of our segments of the podcast. We're going to wrap up with our... Social Fishtensing, I'm practicing saying that, Anthony, because uh, it's a long mouthful there, but Social fish dancing. Uh we're gonna talk to Mr. Mike Tools, a good friend of both of ours, and uh, hear some of his thoughts on uh, where angling and the sport of ice angling is as well. So uh, let's jump right in here and uh, bring in Mr. Bluegill, Troy Peterson.
2: Hey, Troy, how's it going?
3: Good, guys, how are you?
2: Good, just uh, getting, uh, getting the itch to get out on the ice. Um, I know things probably aren't looking so good in your direction, but uh, you know, you ready to talk some, uh, some bluegill and some species? I mean, we got the expert
3: with us. I'd be, uh, I'd be honored to talk some bluegill fishing with you boys. And yeah, we're, uh, I was just out in the boat today. I was telling you guys earlier and I don't think we're going to have ice for a couple of weeks yet. So the best thing is, is it gives me more time to go put the boat in and use some electronics and scout some new lakes.
1: You know, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you're fishing, right? The worst thing would be to get a rim of ice around the lake where you can't get your boat in, but you can't actually go out and fish. That would be terrible. Uh, right. <laughs> but, but this is this isn't the worst thing in the world. Of course, we we want ice to happen. I guess all of us are pretty avid ice anglers and and looking looking forward to what that season's going to bring. Uh, I'm looking forward to what this segment's going to bring because this is the first of our species focused uh, segments really here, and we're we're starting out with bluegills and sunfish. And um, it's just kind of a wide open slate to talk all things about that species and and really just just kind of behavior tactics for for where they're located, uh, fishing tactics, just really anything about that species of fish. And of course, as Anthony and I were talking, you know, we're, we're planning out the season. We're talking about what we're gonna do and and bluegills and sunfish came up first and, uh, it was quite an obvious and quite a quick decision there that we're going to bring you in Mr. Mr. Bluegill as the uh you know as the expert in that area and and I I don't need to explain why you are a very avid bluegill angler uh sunfish angler a very accomplished angler for the listeners to shack talk let's just let's just take it back a step Troy uh you own, you operate, Mister Bluegill Guide Service. Uh, you are known as Mister Bluegill. How did that all come to be? If you can just share with it, just tell that story because I think it's good stuff.
3: Sure. Um, so you know, growing up, always wanted to be a professional fisherman, and uh, I can remember sitting on the boat um, pretending I was, you know, Al Linder and Babe, you know, Babe Winklin and you know, flipping baits and stuff off the bow. Of my grandma and grandpa Sylvan and. Um, it was, you know, just something I always wanted to do. And as I started getting older, I'm um, looking at, you know, where we're at, we're on the walleye Mecca, you know, we're on Lake Winnebago, Green Bay, and everybody around here pretty much fishes walleyes. And, uh, there's a guy by the name of Gary Roach, uh, you know, also known as Mr. Walleye. And, you know, I followed him, read all his books and, you know, the Linders, and, uh, you know, those were my childhood heroes for, you know, like a lot of us actually, And, uh, I always wanted to meet, uh, Gary and, you know, I watched him do the tournament circuits, you know, back in the days of the PWT and, uh, met an old guy, um, locally here and we started bluegill fishing together and, uh, he happened to be one of Gary's good friends. Um, they were the originators of the MWC back when it was the manufacturers walleye circuit. Uh, his name was Dick Stilly. So Dick and Gary knew each other pretty well. One day I'd like to uh, you know, meet Gary if he ever comes back to this area. So he arranged uh, a dinner one night um, up in green Bay when the PWT came. And uh, at the time my license plate in Wisconsin said, Mr. Walleye. And, uh, I got to know Gary and he, you know, fished a couple, uh, tournaments with him, pre-fished with him and, um, you know, a couple of his other teammates and, uh, kind of a friendship was born and got to know him and fished with him for quite a few years and got to know his wife and, um, you know, the rest of his family and out of respect, I changed my license plate cause he gave me a bunch of crap one day about having the Mr. Walleye license plate. And, uh, so I changed it to walleye fisher. And as the years progressed, um, well, years, I think it was like three years, um, you know, we bluegill fishing with these guys and a couple of the other old timers. And uh, every time we go out bluegill fishing, I just, you know, clean their clocks. And uh, they started calling me Mr. Bluegill. And the name kind of stood and uh, trademarked it and uh, been using it ever since. So um, it's quite the honor to get a name from, you know, guys like that to, uh, you know, in the fishing industry that I looked up to.
1: That's a great story. I love hearing the backstory on that Troy and you know you mentioned you mentioned a couple names there and I think it's maybe worth taking a pause here because uh, all of us in the fishing world experienced uh, and heard of the the loss that that took place earlier this week in uh, the passing of Ron Linder and and Ron being Al's older brother and, and really one of the uh, you know they made a great combination. Right, because you you had the, the the teacher in Al, and you had the the the, the inventor and the creativity and Ron, and and just what an impact on the fishing world. And before we jump into talking about bluegills and sunfish, uh, maybe just some thoughts on that.
3: Well, I, you know, I was very fortunate um, back in my early days. I was a part of Shimano and um, worked with the Lindner brothers. Um, very closely doing Gander Mountain um, grand openings. So, you know, every time there was a grand opening at one of these stores, Al and Ron were usually there, you know, and Billy was up in uh, Minnesota and got to ice fish with some of these guys. And, um, yeah, I mean, there again, these guys were my childhood heroes growing up. And uh, I was very fortunate enough to have met him and you know got a chance to hang out with him a couple days. And um, it's a sad loss. And you're you're right, you know, Al is always the... uh, He's the educator, the talker, and Ron, his his wheels were spinning 100 miles an hour all the time. Um, you know, you look at things like target walleye and, you know, the TV and the magazines and all the stuff that, uh, you know, came to fruition is a lot of uh, Ron's ideas.
1: Yeah, quite an impact. And, and most anglers don't realize the, the impact that he had on the sport, uh, but pretty huge, pretty, pretty impactful uh, without any question. Uh, and, and not to mention just just the character of him as an individual. He was a man of faith. He was a man of character, of conviction, and uh, I know he affected, he touched many, many lives. So we're all we're all saddened, and it certainly extend our sympathies and, and thoughts to their family right now at this time. And uh, it's just, uh, it's good, I think it's good to honor honor that uh, at this time of his passing. So Troy, as, as we get, we get back here and we're, we're talking about bluegills, we're talking about sunfish. We, we, there's a million places we could jump into this lake here right in terms of how we begin that conversation but maybe just just a little biology lesson might be a good place to start and open things up in terms of uh, how how the life cycle of these fish progresses throughout the year
3: oh we could you know we could spend an entire segment talking about biology <laughs> of bluegills and uh I, you know, they're again fishing with the Linder boys, and the Linder Media crew actually came over here uh, last year um, and filmed with me. And you know, it was a Bill Hayner. Um, that guy is—he's a, a wizard when it comes time to, to knowing about bluegill stuff. And I learned a lot from you know just talking to him because he does a lot with the Minnesota um, uh, conservation you know, wardens and uh, your programs over there are light years ahead of what Wisconsin is as far as protecting this species, everybody for years thought, you know, uh, it's just a bluegill, you know, it's just a sunfish. And, you know, they're realizing that, you know, these things are trophies and those trophies are slowly, I won't even say slowly they're they're, fastly disappearing because of the over harvesting and you know, of what's happened over the years. I'll raise my hand. I mean, uh, back growing up when I was a kid, my grandma and grandpa took us out we went every day of the week when they were on their beds. And at that time we could keep, you know, keep 50 a piece. And we were keeping, you know, 200 bluegills a night, um, you know, in that eight and a half to nine and a half inch range every single day for like two, three weeks. Um, I look back at that and I'm just ashamed, but we didn't know any better. I mean, that was just, we, we caught fish, we, to eat. I mean, that's what we did. We ate fish and we ate deer education and uh, the steps that, you know, conservation people have taken. And uh, I'm starting to see a, a, a regrowth and some of these lakes come back a little bit, but uh, we're not there yet.
1: Yep. It's, uh, it's a process, isn't it? In terms of educating folks and, and getting that mindset to, to take over and dictate our actions.
3: Yeah, Anthony, you were going to say something.
2: No, I was just going to say, I mean, it's definitely something that we've talked about a lot. And I I think that's kind of the purpose of, you know, this segment, this podcast is, you know, just education. It takes a lot of talk, a lot of conversations. I know you, you admitted it too. I mean, I think we're all guilty of, you know, maybe doing things differently in the past that, you know, our mindsets have changed and shifted. And it's just trying to, you know, introduce those thoughts to the listeners and other people and, you know, kind of sharing that mindset and knowledge and being able to progress the sport a little bit
3: yep absolutely um you know with the increase of anglers that we have today especially with the covid stuff going on um there's a whole new generation of anglers that are coming to this sport this year and uh lakes can't take the pressure um you know where i'm at in central wisconsin you know our lakes range from 15 to 50 acres and uh it's these fish don't reproduce overnight you know you, you take a hundred fish out of a lake in a day um, you know, that's a huge dent on a lake, you know, of that size. So, um, you know, it's really important to understand that if you want to come back and keep enjoying the resources, you got to put some of them back.
1: Troy, just just talking about sunfish and bluegills, what, what does it take uh, – or maybe i should say what is kind of what's your scale right what's a what's a definite throwback when it comes to bluegill what would be considered an eater for a selective harvest purpose and then what is your what's your trophy or your your top side where you're throwing them back
3: i'm going to get a lot of hate from this so i'll i'll just be prepared <laughs> um so for me honestly i use a drum scaler and uh i i personally love those like six and a half to seven and a half inch fish. You know, you get those little bite sized pieces out of them and um, you don't have to worry about any of the pin bones. You know, they just taste better. And if I take, you know, 10 15 fish and get 30 fillets like that for my wife, myself, and you know, my kids um, put some potatoes or whatever along with that. And that's a meal. And that's plenty. The guys that are going out there and pulling eight and a half, nine and a half, some ten inch fish because they think they need those big chunks of meat to feed their family, go walleye fishing or go catch white bass or something. Um, you know, I just they get fishy and they get those pin bones don't fry up when they get that big. You know, same with with crappies go too. You know, the bigger the crappies uh, that they get, um, you know, the mushier and uh, you know the bigger pin bones are in there. And uh, I'm just a you know. There's a reason why they call them panfish, and I like those little guys.
2: Tastes like potato chips when you fry them up. I mean, there's nothing better than that little bite-sized piece. And I think that's, you know, kind of just part of the education of panfish is being able to talk about, you know, that selective harvest size. I know a lot of people are starting to realize that, hey, we need to let those eight and a half, nine, 10 inch fish go, because that really protects the species and that's the producers. And, you know, if you don't protect them, I mean, that's where your likes get stunted and you have, you know, different things within the, the ecosystem. So I, I think educating people on that, I mean, I've always kind of gone with the, you know, seven to eight inch range for fish that I keep and eat. I mean, I think that's a, a big enough filet or fish to get a, you know, decent sized filet off of, whereas you're not hurting or harming that population at all
3: correct yeah there's i mean go to any one of these lakes around here and there's tons of six and a half to seven and a half inch fish it's very hard to find those eight and a half and when you do you gotta you gotta cherish those and and let those fish survive because like you say you know it's interesting how bluegills work you know if you have a lake and you mentioned the word stunt. And if you have a lake that's out there and all you ever catch are six inch bluegills, um, that lake will never grow anything more unless you completely wipe out that population and start over. That's just how these panfish work. It's not like if you got, uh, you know, a, a big walleye, you know, a 30 inch walleye lays eggs and, you know, the hatch from those fish will eventually grow over time. These bluegills are are pretty much the same way, but they only grow as big as what, the fish that laid the eggs or that protect the nests um, are. And, you know, talking to some of these biologists, uh, you know, a 10 inch bluegill is about 10 years old. Um, You know, they don't grow very fast once they get that big and it takes a long time for them to get to that age. So these guys pulling 10 inches out of these lakes, you know, it takes 10 years for a fish to get that size and they don't come back for another 10 years.
1: Wow, that's impressive to think the age of that fish, right, to reach that size. We don't think I'm guilty of it, or at least in the past have been guilty of it, not recognizing just the time factor and the value and the age of a fish of that size.
2: As we kind of look at the different, you know, classifications of sizes of fish, I know previously we've talked about this, but how do you go about finding a good bluegill lake?
3: Well, It starts with research right here on the computer. There's so much information out there at our disposal, uh, whether it be here on the computer uh, websites, DNR websites. There are some lake books that have been published over the years. And what I look for is uh, one, I like, you know, deep bodies of water or very fertile bodies of water. But then when you start looking at all these lakes, you can find all the creel surveys and all the different, uh, fight net samples that they've had. And it'll tell you, um, uh, you know, if they sample a hundred fish, you know, how many fish were between three and five inches and then five to seven, and then you can get those numbers. And when I start looking at lakes and I see, you know, numbers, you know, 15 to 20 fish, uh, nine inches plus or 10 inches plus, I'm going to look at that lake. And what I typically do, uh, I'm a big believer. Now, I don't fish bluegills on their beds. If I do, it's with a fly rod and, uh, You know, I I don't keep anything. What I pretty much do though is drive the boat around on some of these lakes or take the kayak or even just wading around the perimeters when these fish are on their beds and uh, checking to see the quality of the fish that are in the lakes. You know, they're up there, you know, the big males are gonna be up on their beds um, it's a guaranteed thing. And with, you know, the water clarity, um, uh, if you got good clear water, you can not, you know, drive around and, um, you can use an underwater camera and look at the deeper beds where, you know, usually the bigger bluegills are, and, uh, you can get a good justification as far as what's in that lake. And if I see big ones, I'm coming back there ice fishing. If I don't, you know, I kind of chalk it in the back of my, my head for, you know, coming to, to you know, get a place to, or find a place to, you know, just catch a meal.
1: What time of the year are you doing that, Troy? So just as a perspective, right, on the calendar, you're you're out there in your kayaks, obviously, open water, but what time frame?
3: So around here, central Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, these fish usually start to come up on their beds, usually around Memorial Day weekend, and are usually um, up there through the end of June. Um, And then, you know, a little bit this last year with how cold it was, um, you know, it was 4th of July, we were still finding fish on their beds up in northern Wisconsin, but down here in central Wisconsin, southern Wisconsin, they were pretty much off their beds by uh, 1st of July so.
2: When you talk about beds, what are, you, what are you looking for? I mean, in case somebody's never seen a bluegill bed before.
3: Sure. Um, so what you're going to find is, you know, you're going to find uh, uh, sun-beaten shorelines, usually a lot of times up on the north shorelines. Um, you know, if you got a, a sandy, silty um, with some gravel underneath um, then you know that's the kind of areas that they're looking for and what you're going to find your big flats of all these little craters and uh, you know when when they start fanning them out um, it's pretty neat to watch I actually I've had bluegills in my aquariums you know fan beds the males get up and they just start dancing you know fanning out these big little craters um, that they use to uh, you know kind of the females will come in, lay their eggs, and then the males will sit there and swim around in circles and just protect anything that uh, comes close. So you're looking for uh, all these little craters, all these little dimples that are, you know, fanned out on the bottom. Um, and what will happen is if you've got good lakes where you've got, you know, deep, like, a, like a, a shallow area that will have a deep drop-off and weeds adjacent to that whole area, a lot of times those big bluegills will find uh, the deepest part um, that have the, you know, where the gravel finally turns into muck um, or that gravel disappears. Wherever that transition line is, is where typically the big bluegills will stay. And then the shallower you go up is, you know, the smaller fish kind of will hang out up there. Um, and it's it's funny is when you sit and actually go and study these lakes, you can see, you know, size differences. Um, it's like a tier, you know, the top ones are all the little guys and the middle ones, you get a little bit bigger fish and then down on the bottom, um, you know, and not only that, but when you get down there on the bottom on uh, the deeper water, you'll find the biggest nests as, as well. So it's just something that I, I go out and, and look for.
1: So that's that's your springtime. Now you get, get into the fall and, and late fall where we're at, you know, not quite early ice where you're at. We're, we're fortunate to be maybe a little further north than you, Troy, and so we've got, we've got some opportunities now where we're venturing out here uh, with safety precautions and, and checking out some of these spots. Where are you looking? So you've identified the body of water, but now what's the next step?
3: Sure. Well, you know, bluegills, I always tell people, bluegills are a cyclical fish. And what I mean by that is what they do from summer to fall, um, you know, in the summer, um, they're up shallow, um, finding that warm water, fresh oxygen, um, you know, any type of food that's starting to, to regrowth. And, uh, as the summer progresses, those fish will slide out deeper. Um, you know, if the weeds choke off, uh, you know, they're looking for cooler water, um, The dissolved oxygen down in that cooler water is going to be more sustainable for them, and that's kind of what happens with ice fishing. Early ice, um, you know, I'm looking for the shallow shallow water, it's still warm, Uh, the weeds are green, Um, they're starting to die off, and some of the bugs and food are starting to die off. Um, But you know, depending on the bodies of water that you have, if you have river systems or channels or any of these backwaters off some of these bodies of water. Um, one of the things I always look for is one is warm water temperature. If you ever study water underneath the ice, it should be at that 38, 39 degrees. That's, that's the water temperature underneath the ice all the time. When you get really cold winters, you'll find, you know, cooler temperatures, you know, coldest. I think I've ever seen water, um, was in like five, six feet of water. Uh, get down to like 35 degrees. At that point, it's already starting to crystallize and freeze, Um, but that was some super, super cold temperatures. Those channels or anywhere that, you know, if you have houses on the lakes, most of them have sump pumps, and that sump pump water is feeding into the body of water, whether it be the channel or into the lake itself, and uh, that water is a lot warmer than what's actually in the lake. So you'll find, you know, first ice um, anywhere the... these sump pumps or whatever dumping in is typically where we find most of our fish early ice. And then as that starts to freeze out and that shallow water, you know, the ice cap grows, um, pushes those fish out a little bit deeper. And, you know, then we're starting to look for, you know, the deeper weed edges in that 10 to 14 feet of water typically. Um, And then as uh, winter progresses from there, you get into that super cold, you know, late January, February, everything's really slowing down um, is typically when you start finding those fish out over the deep basins and, uh, you know, you're finding suspended fish. But as you you get into that point, um, these fish don't feed as often in that midwinter, late winter stuff. And when they do, you know, they try and find as much food as they possibly can. And I know I've talked to you guys before about this and um, a lot of lakes and what some of the lakes that I fish, I shouldn't even say that most of the lakes I fish that have big bluegills typically have cattails around the perimeter or in one of the bays, um, where these big bluegills, you know, typically nest. And, uh, what we'll find is you can go on a, you know, mid February day, where you would never even think about going into a shallow bay. You know, you might have two, three feet of ice um, in a, you know, maybe six, eight inches of water underneath the ice, but you got a lot of decaying weeds and there might be a few bugs or, you know, something floating around down there yet. These bluegills will go into those shallow bays once or twice a day, um, usually early morning, you know, late evening before dark. And uh, they'll go in there and feed on whatever they can possibly find. Um, Because over the abyss, there really isn't much food for them. And uh, they come into these shallow bays. And I've actually seen them swim almost at like a 45 degree angle, you know, sideways, like a flounder, um, trying to find food. And uh, if you happen to be there at that time, you can, you know, pound on them. Same with, you know, the, and the perch actually follow those bluegills around too. But um, if I go in there, you know, 10 days, two days might be the only two days that, that we find them. Um, so it's always worth, you know, going out and exploring and, uh, you know, not so much fishing memories all the time, but just going out and trying new stuff. Um, you'd be surprised on, on what you see.
1: Wow! When you
2: talk about the basin, like, uh, you know, what do you maybe for somebody that's looking for a spot on a lake or maybe their own lake, um, you know, what is the basin and what are
3: you kind of looking for there? Sure. So what I look for is the closest weeds. I'm just going to kind of set my, so if you've got, uh, if you got a lake shallow up here, obviously deep down here, and you've got weeds in the middle that come up, say 12, you know, the tops of the weeds are at 12 feet and the basin down here is, you know, 25, 30 feet. What those fish will do is they don't like, changing pressure. Um, so they won't go down deep. So what they do is they typically early in the morning, late at night, or evening bite, morning bite, those fish will be up in the shallow, shallow weeds, you know, usually cruising around in the weeds. And then what'll happen is if the you know, predators are, are feeding, um, those fish will actually go down into those stalks. Um and when I say that, picture looking at a forest or at a, you know at a woods. And you've got a canopy of, of trees up in that canopy. You can't see through that. I mean, that's thick cover, but then all you got are stumps and you can find your paths and trails in that through those stumps. And that's where those bluegills and stuff are hiding during the day. And then, you know, or I shouldn't say it during the day, but early morning and, and evening during those peak feeding times for not only the panfish, but those predator fish, you know, they're they're looking and those bluegills and stuff will drop down to hide. And then what'll happen during the day when everything's kind of mellowing out, those fish just slide, you know, almost on a, on a level plane out over the basin. So if the, the weeds are top out at 12 feet and, you know, maybe go down to 16 feet, I won't find those fish any deeper than 16 feet a lot of times. They'll be in that same same zone. They just slide back and forth kind of on the same plane. And, uh, you know, having good electronics, you can see that pretty easy.
2: Talking about electronics a little bit too, what are, you, what are you looking for? Like when you're talking about finding those fish in the weeds, I know that can be kind of tricky or, you know, even when you're looking out over the basin.
3: I'm a flasher guy through and through. Um, I run the Markham, you know, M5s. And uh, it's so hard for me to get rid of that uh, because I can still, like we say, talking in those weeds, um, those canopies, I can watch my jig and watch that flicker down through there um, and actually watch my bait then get down into those stalks versus an LCD. Um, it seems like you just you just can't get that, that little flicker that you normally can with a mechanical flasher. Now, the LCDs have their purpose. You know, I love using them um, watching, you know, history over the basin, all those fish come up and, you know, watch the reaction, especially for walleyes over the open water. But when I'm fishing in the weeds for bluegills, um, you'd have to pry my flasher out of my hand.
1: That's great insight, Troy. That is, uh, that's good to know because there's, there's, pros and cons with with all of the different tools we have available right and you get into the conversation about cameras and where they apply and how you use those in those specific instances and and certainly some of the new technology some of the side scans that are out there and how you use those to locate fish and, and just a lot of great tools but you have to figure out what works best for you as an angler and what gives you that advantage to find and catch those fish and speaking of catching the fish let's judge, transition into that, Troy. Uh, describe for us, you know, in, in general terms, what is your ideal kind of go-to bluegill rod, right? Your rod reel setup, your your not specific lure, maybe in colors, but just, just some some ideas on a few lures we might wanna have when we head out after the the bluegills.
3: Sure, um, so for me, I'm, a, I'm an outside fisherman. Um, you very seldom will see me sitting inside um, I'm constantly standing up and, you know, my knees have taken enough abuse over the years as an ice fisherman. Um, I've kind of progressed into using a longer rod and, uh, you know, I prefer, it. we just kind of got, we got hooked up with the, uh, with the Elliot rods this year and, you know, we got a 44 inch super fast ultralight tip, um, great sensitivity. And what that allows me to do is just be able to walk around from hole to hole. Anybody that bluegill fishes knows you got to keep moving around. Um, I mean, we drill a hundred holes, uh, without even, you know, breaking an eye. I mean, it's the first thing we do is, it's like, we drill a hundred holes, cover an area and you know, we just hole hop until, you know, we get onto some fish. And a lot of times when these fish are feeding, you know, they're just cruising around. So you gotta, you know, just keep moving around with them. But, uh. I love my inline reels. Um, you know, the thing with the inlines is you, know, you don't get that line twist. You're allowing, allowing that bait to fall nice and uh, smoothly, not, uh, not getting the line twist. You know, presentation's more natural. And using tungsten, you know, pretty much using just tungsten jigs. Um, running a, a two-pound fluorocarbon, um, you know, the new Isex uh, fluorocarbon. Colors, You know, everybody asks about colors and everybody, you know, (laughs) all these custom painting guys hate me because um, I will be the first one to say that uh, everything I use is strictly just based off of contrast. I'm not a, a, one of these guys that will go out and spend high dollars and all these custom painted baits um, because these fish really don't see color. They see hue and they see contrast. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you've got um, you know, uh, everybody always, you know, the, the wonder breads or whatever, all these different colors. And all that is, is just different hues and different contrasts of colors. It isn't so much the blues, pinks, you know, whites, yellows. I think you could, you know, use any combination of any color, um, as long as you got that contrast that's down there. And, you know, for anybody that's Ever dove scuba dive or anything like that, be surprised at what happens, you know, when you get down, you know, 18, 20 feet. Um, their colors just absolutely disappear. Um, so it's been talked about, you know, and everybody uh has their own opinion on it. And you know, I always tell guys that those pretty colors catch fishermen, not so much the fish. And uh coppers, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh of the copper color. Um, I use a lot of just plain copper. Silvers, golds, and then I will use a lot of pink and white, um, just because that pink looks like that you know that darker, and then having the whites as that contrasting flash, and then you know glows too. I'm a big believer in glows. You know that glow, you're still going to get that that last you know half hour um, of after light. You're going to get an extra half hour of fishing that those fish can see. Just another big uh, believer in the glows, and typically a red glow. You know, crappies like that white or that green and uh, the bluegills seem to be more after that red.
2: I think it's important too to like realize you're trying to match what these bluegills are eating. They're eating little bugs they're eating little things. I mean, if you look at a bug, they're brown or, you know, blackish in color. You know, there's not a lot of bright colors to them. So, I mean, I, it would only make sense that you're trying to match what they're typically feeding on.
3: Yep. And when we get into stained water, you know, you're using brighter colors, obviously for visibility from, you know, catching fish from further away, but where I'm at, and I believe, and I think you guys have been over here fishing by me. Our water is gin clear. I mean, we can see 20 feet. You can read the, you know, the date on a dime. Uh, So we are, we have to be supernatural. A lot of dark colors, you know, like I said, telling you blacks or dark copper, even just a dark red, anything that's, you know, more natural, that, uh, you know, is not going to give, give your bait away to these fish. Cause we've all watched bluegills on cameras. They come up and they got those li- lizard eyes and, you know, they'll sit there and scope everything out. And if they don't like what they see, they just back away and, you know, go to the next one.
1: Okay. So Troy, um, what's your preference? Live bait or artificial?
3: Live bait, hundred percent. You know, I, I've, uh, I got more plaques plastics than fleet farm probably does. And, um, the, I still go back to, you know, straight either maggots or, uh, or wax worms. If I can't catch them on live bait with good chance, I'm not going to sit there. My time's precious. Live bait is, is cheap in my opinion. If I have to sit there, uh, and finesse one fish every 10 minutes, I'm not sticking around. I don't have the patience for that anymore. And, you know, for me guiding, I have to keep people on fish. We have to be catching something. Um, if I got to sit there and micro size down to the absolute smallest piece of plastic and number 20, you know, hooks and jigs, if it was just me and I was mad at those fish, no problem. But uh, with what we got going on, I got to find fish. I got to catch fish. I'm just going to keep throwing my bait at them.
2: I think that's a good thing to You know, for anybody that's going out too, I find myself maybe sometimes starting with a plastic and then, you know, you'll know right away if they're aggressive and they're feeding and they're hitting that, then I will just leave it on. But, you know, if they start to reject it, I mean, yeah, like you said, there's nothing wrong with a fresh piece of meat on the hook. They're going to come up
1: and, you know, slurp that in pretty easy. Yep. So, okay, as long as we're doing questions here, Troy, what's your biggest personal best bluegill to date?
3: Um, so I got one just under two pounds. Um, I caught it by accident while I fishing. So I, 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 claim it, but I don't claim it. Um, caught them on a quarter ounce jig actually on a, with a minnow nonetheless. And, uh, I've got a few, let's see, I got 11, 11 and a quarter, uh, you know, 10 and a halfs you know, that pound and a half fish is probably as big as what I caught here in Wisconsin. Um, I would love nothing more. If anybody hears this, watches this, um, you know, the Hills up in North Dakota or down in Nebraska, I've never been to any of these giant bluegill waters and, uh, I'm stuck having to fight and find all these fish over here in Wisconsin. Um, I would love the opportunity to go out there and do that.
1: Anthony what about you what's your personal best bluegill
3: uh, I think I'm right around that 10 inch range um you
2: know it's hard to remember all the fish that I caught before I really started caring about like you said caring about size or anything it was just catch a big fish and whether you're going to keep it and eat it or not but I think right around that 10 inch mark is kind of where I've I'd obviously love to catch that you know 10 and a half 11 inch fish like Troy talks about or you know there's those mythical you know 11s 11 and a half 12s out there so, so I agree if if you're calling Troy. You'd better make sure that I'm the next phone number.
3: (laughs) I have this picture. Um, My grandma and grandpa used to take me fishing. Um, This was probably, oh, I must've been five or six at the time. And, uh, you know, it was caught on Lake Poygan, but it's a legitimate 12 inch bluegill that she's got holding and it's bigger than a dinner plate. And, you know, that's kind of fish we used to have on the system. Now everybody, you know, kills everything. Uh, it's getting pretty hard to even find anything close to that, but a legitimate 12 is, is my goal. Uh, I had a client last or not last year, the year before I get a, a 11 and three quarter on that lake that I took you guys to. And, um, it was, he, it, he had no idea what he had. He's like, Oh, this is a nice one. I'm like, dude, do you realize what you have in your hands? You got an almost a 12 inch bluegill. And he's like, okay, yeah. so do I eat? I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> If you're going to mount it, you're going to keep it where you're going to get mounted, or you're going to put it back down the hole. And uh, he's like, and all his buddies are like, dude, that's the biggest bluegill I've ever seen. You know, so he did end up getting it mounted, so.
1: Well, speaking of that lake you took us to, Troy, uh, this was a couple years back. We had the opportunity to fish with you on on an Eskimo team outing. You hosted central Wisconsin, and and you took us out to a lake. And I got to be honest. Prior to that, I mean, I always, you know, bluegills are bluegills, whatever. If that's what's biting, we'll fish bluegills. But I've never felt the urge to really say, I want to catch bluegills, right? (laughs) Just as a, you know, let's go do this. So we go out that day and it was fun because, you know, group of us that went out and I can remember that day and I remember the morning was pretty slow. Morning yep. was really slow and and a, and a portion of the group we were fishing with had to leave right after lunch. So they took off and and you kept drilling holes. We kept looking and, and lo and behold, as that sun got a little lower in the horizon, all of a sudden it was just like someone turned the switch on. It's kind of what you described earlier, Troy, where those fish, maybe they were suspended out over the basin, maybe they were down in the stocks of those weeds, but all of a sudden they decided they were gonna eat. And we sat there and we and we caught and released multiple nine and a half, ten, and ten and a half. And I believe if I remember right, there was an eleven caught or one that was just shy of eleven that day out on the ice. And it it burned in my mind the kind of the thrill of, of what bluegill fishing is about.
3: Yeah, there's a difference between going out and catching big bluegills and then just catching eaters. You know, when you get into those nostalgic 10-inch fish, um, I mean, that's like the 50 inch musky club, 30 inch walleye club, or, you know, a boon and crocodile or anything like that for the bluegill guys. I mean, those 10 inches are what we seek.
1: Yeah. And you, you really come to an appreciation and, and I'm so glad I went on that trip because I, I did have a chance uh, fishing in North Dakota to, to get onto a pretty, pretty big bluegill one that we went 12 and an eighth. And, Ooh. um, but you don't know what that fish is until you have that in your hand. And, and, uh, after being in my freezer for a week, put on a postage scale, it was still over two pounds.
3: Oh, my God. Yeah. So. we are invite. I mean, Anthony, well, I can't believe this.
1: You're welcome. to. It's not a bluegill known lake, to be honest. It kind of was one of these stumble across it. We were fishing for panfish crappies, and, and it's known for bluegills in that probably... Six to eight inch range where you can go out and you know keep five to ten and and make a meal of it and that's really what we were doing and all of a sudden you know you think you have a, a small pike or a largemouth bass that's grabbed onto your onto your tungsten jig and your reel starts screaming and and uh, pulled my transducer cord out of the hole and and bent over and looked down the <laughs> hole and see this dinner plate go across. And then stuff got real, right? I mean then, then things got very real in a big big hurry. Got it up there and and I think we measured it about 10 or 15 times because we couldn't believe what we were seeing. But yeah, that's you know, that's the kind of uh, excitement and passion and and really having been on the trip with you prior to that. It really sort of set the stage of being able to appreciate that kind of fish.
3: Yep. Oh, that's a, I mean that's a once in a lifetime fish.
1: Yeah. All right. Last thing,
2: last thing for me, I guess, before we maybe wrap things up, you know, you've caught these bluegills, you know, you kept some to eat you maybe release some big ones. What's your favorite way to cook them up?
3: Oh, I got a couple videos out there. Um, I've got my, uh, my breaded, you know, standard deep fried bluegill recipe that's out there. Uh, but even now I think my wife and my kids, and anybody I've ever cooked bluegills for, they all loved, you know, the, the deep fried Um, but they all beg me to put them on the trigger and, uh, it's such an easy recipe. Um, take, uh, take your bluegill fillets, get a stick of butter, uh, a couple lemons, put the, the butter in the microwave, melt it all down. Um, take a lemon, cut it in half, squeeze both sides or both halves of the lemons into that butter, mix it all up, get a foil pan, just base some, uh, some of that lemon butter down, lay those fillets down. Base a little butter lemon over the top and a little bit of lemon pepper seasoning, put them on the grill, uh, you know, five, six minutes. And uh, oh, yeah,
2: it's making me drool. Just think about it. And I know, (laughs) I know I've gotten that recipe from you and I've done it with bluegills and every type of fish that I've caught. And it is one of my favorites. I mean, it's so
3: easy to do. Walleyes, perch, crappies, bluegill. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's just good with everything.
2: Yeah, a little bit of tinfoil, even whether it's a tinfoil pan or you just roll the edges up on some tinfoil, crumple it up, throw it away when you're done. I mean, it's simple cleanup. It's amazing. And,
1: yeah, I agree. It's one of my favorites as well. Well, you got me hungry now. I'm thinking about having some fish for dinner tonight.
3: What day I can get over there and we're going to go hit that lake.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome over here anytime, Troy. Uh, for folks that are listening, they're listening to Shack Talk, Troy, and and – They're inspired by this. They want to get on some bluegills. They're over in that Wisconsin uh, neighborhood in in your neck of the woods. How can they get a hold of you? How can they find you? How can they, number one, how can they follow you? Because you put out some great content, but how can they then get a hold of you if they want to book a trip or spend some time on the ice?
3: Sure. Um, if you type in Mr. Bluegill in any search engine, I'll be all over the place. Otherwise, uh, Facebook, The uh, you can look at either Mr. Bluegill or facebook.com slash walleye guide. But then every other social media icon that's out there um, is just at Mr. Bluegill. Awesome. My website's there, too. That's just Mr. Bluegill.com. Um, phone number, email, everything's on there.
1: Joy, thanks for spending some time with us today. Uh, love the insight. Love the, the, the knowledge that you're you're able to share with our listeners and, and appreciate uh, taking time to share
3: that. I appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, hopefully we'll see you guys on the ice here in a few weeks. That sounds- we won't be seeing you this weekend. Normally we'd be seeing you this weekend in, in Minnesota, and unfortunately um, not going to happen this year.
1: Yeah, we're going to have, uh, with the absence of the ice shows this year, this would typically be our St. Paul Ice Show weekend. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm going to miss seeing all the the folks down there, all the friends and the folks in the industry and the customers. But but you look for the silver lining, and I guess it's uh, an extra weekend either to be in the boat or out on the ice, uh, if it's Anthony and I, and, and uh, take advantage of that time as well. So it's always good chatting with you. Folks, we're going to take a break from this segment of the podcast. We're gonna come back, as we mentioned before, with uh, with a recorded interview that we recorded last spring with, uh, we've got Keith Horning. He's a Michigan angler who, uh, who who experienced a situation where he broke through the ice. And uh, he's gonna tell his story, he's gonna share that with us. Uh, that's gonna be our next segment. And then we're gonna wrap up the podcast today with our social fish dancing segment with Mike Toole. We'll be right back, folks.
2: Welcome back to another segment of the Shack Talk podcast. And and one segment that we feel we can't cover enough is ice safety. And I know Kyle and I have talked about this, and I don't think we could talk about it enough. It's one of those things, whether it's early season, mid-season, or late season, it's something that should always be on the back of your mind. And I think with the the gear that we have nowadays, um, there's so much safety equipment that, one, is available, and, two, it can even be built into the stuff that we just wear on a normal basis. um, It's something that we kind of maybe take for granted, but I think we've got uh, a gentleman that we'd like to interview this uh, segment and to kind of hear his story. um, Unfortunate, you know, to have broken through the ice. And we're really excited to kind of share with you that obviously one, it was a positive experience and there was a good outcome, but I think it'll be really interesting to kind of hear uh, someone else's perspective on, you know, going through the ice and how the gear that they had may have assisted in having a safe recovery.
1: Yeah. Anthony, you know, this is one of those things that, that to your point, you can't emphasize ice safety enough, just the sheer nature of the sport going out in the winter and harsh cold conditions uh, on frozen water. um, Just, just all of those things and those factors, it has to be in the forefront of our mind every single time on the ice.
2: Exactly. And so with that, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Keith Horning from Faster Michigan. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And, and I know I kind of touched a little bit on it kind of in the intro there, but and we've talked before we started recording, but maybe just tell us, um, tell our listeners a little bit about your experience ice fishing, how long you've been ice fishing and kind of where you, where you ice fish.
0: Well, I'm I'm pretty fairly new to ice fish. I've only been doing it maybe five years now. I've never been on the ice other than recently because I'm from California originally, moved to Michigan, and uh, you know it, <laughs>
2: it was a pretty scary thing when I went through that ice. You know, talk a little bit about the the conditions, um, what lake you were on, and what time of year it was. It was
0: January. Ice conditions at that that time of year um, last year was. We had pretty poor ice conditions. It never really froze too good. And the day I went through, was probably around 29, 30. We were fishing Saginaw Bay. We fished this spot a couple times, and uh, but we didn't ride a quad out. We walked out, and uh, when we were heading out, most of the time, we, when we were on foot, we were, we'd spud, and ice was good. And every, every time we drilled a hole, we were looking at 9, 10 inches of ice.
1: Nine ten inches of ice is that's that's a lot of ice, and for most folks, we would look at that and say, uh, "Hey, we don't we don't have a problem here. It's nine or ten inches of good ice. We should be safe."
0: Yeah, you, you would think that, and then, uh, well, like the thing with Saginaw Bay, there's there's currents, the so ice and stuff in certain parts, you know, from what I'm told, and apparently uh, it had probably had um, some current eating away the ice, and and we pushed too far out, you know hockey i guess you know and
2: uh, yeah so tell us a little bit about you know you said you were on a four-wheeler um, where you had you stopped before were you guys checking the ice um, what what walk us through kind of what happened and before you guys broke through the ice well,
0: on that day we uh, we hadn't really planned on taking the quad because we were going to go somewhere else and we had uh decided to scrap the quad and go to where we know there's good ice and we've seen a lot of machine thick ice, of 9, 10 inches, um, the week before. And it was kind of cold still. When we head out there, we grabbed the otter and loaded up the quad, and we headed out. And we got out a mile. We set up a machine and killed the mold. And we weren't barking fish for a while. And uh, we said, hey, let's move. Well, we got on the quad, and we headed further out. And we'd stop and pop holes, check ice ice, ice sickness, and if we were marking fish and did it a couple of times, and we kept pushing further out and looking at the GPS and looking for deeper water. And we noticed a, a rock pile up on the GPS and we wanted to hit that. We figured that hole from fish. And we really wanted to get a walleye. And uh, I don't know, we, we just weren't pinned. I guess we got confidence everywhere. We, were. we pumped, pumped holes and checked ice. It was, it was, it was nine inches, you know? Yeah. So we pushed out further and, we let out towards the rock pile. It was close. And as we were hitting there, just the ice gave away. We hit a bad spot. Probably, it was probably made up by the current. I thought he was on the back. The back end dropped. He went in and he went underneath the ice. And uh, I got hung up. I got hung up somehow on my quad and, know, I have water up to my, up to my eyes and popping up trying to get air. And really when I first went in, it happened so fast, that water hit me and I just took the breath out of me and I was instant survival mold and trying to get to my, get my senses about me. And every time I'd grab onto some ice to try to pull myself off, it would snap. and My leg was caught up somehow on my quad and. I was thrashing around and yelling for my buddy because I didn't know where I didn't hear him. and I, I don't know if I couldn't hear him because all the crashing of the ice and the slapping of the water, you know. But uh, somehow my leg came free off my quad and uh, that's one of those Eskimo uh, flotation bibs. And as soon as my legs got away from the quad, I, my legs just floated up the surface and... I was able to start really trying to climb out and I get a grab ahold of some ice. I pulled myself. It's, it it broke a little bit. It broke. And I went back in my, but my legs kept floating back up to the surface. I have a jacket. I just had a sweater, but my back end lifted up just enough where I could just slide out of that ice almost like a a seal. And as soon as I got on the ice and it, it held, I, I rolled. I just, I didn't try to stand up. I just started rolling as far away from the spot that I, I could. When I got up, my buddy Nick had popped up, thankfully, and uh, he was he, he was soaked. I was soaked. We got up. Actually, uh, we we ended up another mile and a half past um, out on the base, so or about two and a half miles out. And the clock was in the water, and uh, my bike next. hey, we got to go. We got to go. We got to get back to the shanty And uh, I scrambled around looking for my phone. It got thrown uh, clear, and you know, on some good ice, and I grabbed that, and we started trying to hike back. And it was pretty cold when we were 29. There was a, there was a light wind, but, man, that wind was hitting me, and I felt like needles on my hands and my face. We started hiking back to the, uh, and I, all that cold and all that wind started my body started locking up. started getting cold. I really had to dig deep to get there. And I'm a bigger guy too. I'm not, I'm not in the little guy. You know, I'm a good four, at the time I was a good 400 pounds. You don't see too many big dudes running around. Yeah, he's, and, uh, we dug down, dug deep, and made it to the shanty. My buddy Nick was right there with me, trying to get me back to, back to the shanty. We got um, got in the shanty, fire up the heater on high, and started stripping, stripping all the white clothes we could, and trying to warm up.
1: Wow, Keith, that's an amazing story. And I just found myself listening to you describe what you just told us, and and just, I mean, it seemed like every every little detail you were including there uh wow definitely very,
2: painted a mental picture for everyone
1: very uh, much so so tell you know when you when you felt that ice falling away and you you knew that inevitably you were going in the water what was going through your mind
0: i don't know uh, uh fear probably it was it was definitely fear for the first part and then it was we need to get out of here had to, but to be honest, too, I, was awful. I, I turned around and I was looking at my quad. I kept turning around, you know, when we we're heading back to the cab, the, the ice house, and yep. looking at my quad sunk in the water. And then looking around, noticed this vext was floating on the surface. And I was looking for my auger, couldn't find my auger, and. He's telling me,
1: "Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Let's go. Let's go." But he grabbed his Vexilar, <laughs> and <laughs> we we took off. Isn't it a, isn't it strange how our minds, when we're in a situation like that, we're not necessarily always thinking logically, right? We're just we're in that yeah. survival mode, as you described it. You're you're in in survival mode. You knew you had to get back to that shanty and warm up, but yet you were worried about your gear and and to be quite honest, it's just gear, and and you can always. You always get more gear, but you gotta you gotta take care of yourself, make sure you're all right. So I'm really glad you guys made it back and were able to warm up.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a high field. and the mile was really not nothing, you know what I mean? But when you're wet, I mean you're soaked, and you're walking in 20 degree weather, and you got a wind blowing on you, and you it stings. It took all. When we got in there, it took a while for me to feel my hands. My hands were numb. I mean, it it was bad.
2: And I think the, the point that I took away from your story is, to me, it sounds like a normal day. It sounds like a normal day when you guys would be out fishing. It sounds like something that I would do. And I think the point that, you know, I took away most was, you know, you never know when it can happen. It can happen at any time. Um, we always say that the ice is never safe. And I think to your point, you know, having the gear on that you had on, I know you said as soon as your, your bibs broke loose, that you were able to kind of feel yourself float up a little bit or there was that float assist. And I think, you know, to, to listening to your story, um, that was kind of one of the, the things that I took away from it. Oh yeah.
0: I, I. I can one hundred percent guarantee if I was not wearing one of those flotation um, I probably wouldn't be here. I'm gonna be honest. Wow. But, yeah, those things save my life. Like, like, They're the best investment I had had made. And hell, after that happened, my buddy ran out about a hole too. You know,
1: he was worried how he was gonna get me out because I am I'm a big guy. You know, I mean I'm not not little you know and I I think um, I think to your point that you 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 had the bibs on right and they gave you that lift and they lifted your legs up and if you imagine for, for those of us who've never experienced that falling into the water and and if you're in up to your shoulders how you maneuver enough strength to get the rest of your body up on top of the ice that's a daunting task to think you're going to lift yourself up with wet clothes, but yet with those uplift float assist liners that lifted the lower half of your body up. Right. And I, your analogy of of getting out of the water onto the ice, like a seal would is just the perfect description of what that type of uh, float assist is there to do. You had those bibs on yes. your, your legs floated up and you were able to really slide or kind of just work your way up on the ice.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. It's just, I, I can not imagine doing it without, and you know, it, it was fairly, we're, we're probably in about 11 feet of water when we went through and then it's even deeper. So there was no four or five foot of water where we could just push off the, off the bottom, you know? Nope. There's, there was none of that. It was, it was, it had everything to do with those dips, being able to float my legs up, you know? Like, I know if I ever when I go back out and I, um, and it's sketchy, I'm gonna play it way different. you know that, instead that, of riding my quad, stopping, I'm gonna walk out, I'm gonna stop, walk out,
1: check. Keith, you bring up a really good point and that is um, as Anthony said, I hope nobody ever has to experience this, but being prepared is is important and and I think it's that lesson that hindsight. Which we can all have, right? We all go through experiences, and and we look back on them, and we we are a lot smarter than when we go into them. And um, what what are you going to do different next time, or what are you going to do different every time you set foot on the ice from now on?
0: Well, I'm definitely going to be way more cautious. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it I'm gonna read the ice a lot better, or try to read it better, you know, as best I can. And uh, I'm definitely I'm not going to charge out, especially during a. Uh, a, a dumpy ice season like we had out here in Michigan, I, and only oh, well, place like I can kill ice, Northern Michigan. You know, down uh, down here by the summit, it never really locked up. You know, and I just I just know it's ice safety. And just listening to the old timers, you know, and I got lectured by all the old timers I knew at work. I, I felt like a little kid being scolded by, <laughs> by every one of those older ice fishermen I I work with. They they let me have it and uh, they started giving me their tips and and whatnot.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you sharing your story. I mean, like you said, the, the old timers sharing their stories and scolding you. I mean, I'm glad that this story had a very happy outcome with everybody being safe. And I think hopefully everyone listening can take a little bit of advice from this story and you know, just be more precautious, don't ever play it safe, um, and wear, you know, the safety equipment that's available, um, you know, that could really make or break the difference on, on being safe on the ice. So, again, Keith, thanks for sharing your story with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. With that, I want to just say uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to this segment. Thanks, Keith, for joining us. Smith. So, stay tuned for another segment of Shack Talk Podcast. back to our third and final segment of this episode as we just joined in on the last segment and listened to a pre-recorded interview we had with uh, Keith Horning we're really very thankful for the outcome of his story we always preach ice safety and we hope that his experiences kind of shine a little bit of light on that why we always need to be so careful when we're going out on the ice you never know what's going to happen and we're really glad that the, uh, the outcome of his story was a positive one now we're going to move into our third segment and final segment and as we alluded to previously we're calling this the social social fishing segment of our podcast say that three times fast but we want to welcome mike tool um we're really excited to have him onto this segment and talking about why he likes to get out ice fishing why he's you know glad that there's a sport that others can get out ice fishing and and why we all just need to probably spend more time out ice fishing with everything that's going
1: on. So, Mike, welcome! Thanks for joining us.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always good to see you guys,
1: Mike. Um, just for our listeners, I, I know that that um, you're, you're a pretty visible guy. You're, you're out there doing a lot in the outdoors. You're pretty active and involved. But um, share with the the Shack Talk listeners just a little bit about your background and and kind of where you come to. From uh, um, in, into the f- sport of ice fishing and and kind of what uh, what your perspective is on things.
4: Oh, I don't know. I guess I guess I just love to get out and fish anytime I can if if there's an opportunity to. Um, I would say even more so than just getting out and fishing, my true passion is getting others out and fishing. Um, if I can get somebody new out to to take them out fishing, whether that's ice fishing or summertime fishing, um, I would much rather have somebody else catching fish than, than catching them myself. So. Well,
1: and, and, um, having known you for, for gosh, I want to say I've, you and I've been friends for, for darn near a decade here. And, uh-huh. um, you have a perspective coming in to the outdoors in general and like Anthony and myself, um, not being independently wealthy, you have to, you have to work from nine to five, right? Both, both Anthony and I have jobs we work at and, and, Fishing and the outdoors is is a big passion, but it's uh, it, it's right beside that. Uh, share with us just a little bit about your profession and what you do for a living.
4: Well, my full time job. Technically, I have two full time jobs. I guess if you want to want to get real, um, when I'm the my full time job is a uh, police officer. I'm a school resource officer for our lo- local school district. Um, and then when I'm not doing that, I own some apartments here in Grant Falls and. And uh, but mainly, mainly I'm, I claim to be a police officer more so.
2: So you're seeing those kids day in and day out, and and dealing with all of that. Um, I know we talked a little bit before we started recording, but you know the focus of this segment is you know just talking about why we like to get out ice fishing. And I know you alluded that you know you like to get others out ice fishing. We talked about it in our you in know our intro to the to the season uh, back in episode one you know, that there's been a lot of people joining the sport of ice fishing and and are fishing in general, but even, you know, as we move into ice fishing, kind of, have you seen that even just in your day to day, do you see more kids and more youth getting involved and kind of how has that changed the the landscape, I guess?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, I I get the opportunity to, to just have conversations with kids all the time and, and you hear that a lot, the topic of outdoor activities coming up more so, you know, maybe two, three years ago, We were talking a lot about sports and and those type of of activities that they were really into. But obviously with where we're at in 2020, um, a lot of those things aren't there to talk about right now. So a lot of the topics that come up are, are whether it's something that they get to do now because they don't have practice at night and they get to go out and maybe they did it before or it's. They just wanted something new to do um they're they're getting into it and and really enjoying it and having the, the time to do it now too so.
1: mike you um you have a, a history of of introducing folks to the outdoors and, and so if, if you have a, a student interested in becoming a student angler right that's listening to the podcast here today if you have a parent who's maybe wondering what are my kids gonna do now since uh you know, early winter sports have perhaps been canceled in the, in their school district. Um, what's your recommendation on on getting kids, maybe giving them that nudge to get them outdoors? Um, what's the magic wand that that really gets that focus pointed here out on the ice?
4: Well, I think I think really it's it's probably you know two parts. You know, it's it's a I think finding that, that person that can be your mentor, you know, if you've never done it before and you just don't know where to start, it can be a daunting task to be like, okay, how do I get out there and go fishing when I've, I don't own any equipment. I don't do any of that stuff. So find a mentor that, that has the equipment or or can at least point you in the right direction or the right Lake or something like that. Um, maybe they're willing to take you out like, like I would be or something like that. Um, and, you see that a lot where as sportsmen, I think more of us are probably like that than not where, you know, it, the old age of keeping keeping your secret spots and, and all that stuff is kind of going to the wayside. I think people are probably more willing to help out than, than the ones that aren't willing to help out.
2: I think that's great advice. I mean, if anybody that's listening is in an area and they don't know who to contact, I mean, between Kyle, myself, the rest of the Eskimo staff, I mean, we cover a large area of the ice belt. If you're, if you're listening and you're looking for someone to, to help you out, I mean, reach out to us. I mean, it, in the age of social media, I mean, we can put out a feeler to a couple of different people. And I would bet within a few hours, we'd be able to point you to someone that's willing to help out, give you some tips or advice, or heck, there's probably even people out there that are probably even just take you with for the day. So, Yeah.
4: Yeah, if it isn't if it isn't one of us that that can specifically help you out, I guarantee we probably know somebody that's in your area that can probably help you out.
1: Well, and and we talked about this uh last episode, Mike, but you know, ice fishing is one of those sports where yeah, we want to avoid crowds. We want to avoid that close person to person contact like like we're being told we should be doing, right? And and so, you know, ice fishing is really conducive to that. You yeah. or I or Anthony can can meet somebody at a, a boat launch this winter. And we can say, Hey, you know, I'm going to pull my sled out. And I got a couple of shacks there. Uh, when we get out there, we'll set one up for you and your kid. We'll set one up for me. I can answer questions. We can talk. It really works well, whether it's a couple of buddies going out or or a mentor situation, like you kind of described.
4: Yeah, no doubt. I think, I think as ice fishermen, we've been socially distanced since before that was a, a buzzword. That's nothing new to be yelling back and forth across the lake. Hey, you catching anything? So, absolutely. I think I think ice fishing is probably one of the best activities to do that that is uh, compliant with with all the rules and regulations right now.
1: What? is your mike just looking maybe to ask a few questions about you specifically here uh what are you looking forward to most about this winter in this ice season
4: you know just probably maybe the feeling of normalcy <laughs>
2: um
4: our season last year you know kyle you and i had some some trips planned at the end of the year that kind of got cut short abruptly with with borders closing and, and that type of stuff so i was Kind of I felt cheated out of the last part of my last ice season. So I'm really excited to to get back into it and just go have it feel like a normal year for a little while.
1: What will be your first outing onto the ice this year? Where will it be?
4: You know, it really depends. I'll probably be chasing the ice more than anything. But if we were saying that all the lock the lakes froze up at the exact same time, they all have the exact same ice. I'll probably be going to Big Stone and chasing some perch. I bet.
1: Another question for you, Mike. You mentioned Big Stone; that'll be your first outing. Where, what's your favorite ice destination?
4: You know, it's it's hard to beat that Lake Winnipeg. That, that's that's a tough one to beat. Um, anytime you can go and and every single fish you catch is is the potential to be over thirty. That'll that'll ruin you for the rest of ice fishing anywhere else. So
1: certainly will won't it and and i know one of those years i'm gonna hit that 30 mark and <laughs> but that's a great place to go with a lot of potential if you're gonna do it that's probably one of the, the one of the places to go to up your odds and and i i am sure looking forward to that day when that border opens back up again
4: yeah for sure you know like i like i hinted at that our trips were cut short You know, i was well last year we were literally trying to time it out if we could get across the border before it closed because our trip was that exact same weekend. So it, uh, I think we made the right decision and not going personally, but yeah, it, uh, it was definitely, definitely on our minds that we tried to get that last one in.
2: We're diehards. We're always looking to get that last trip in. I know that, you know, as Kyle mentioned, you know, even towards the end there, we maybe weren't being able to go, as far on some of those trips but I mean I know I was out there till the bitter end and trying to be safe and keeping it local and not being around a whole bunch of other people but you know we as ice fishermen we do what we got to do to be out there and you know I think you Kyle myself we're all just itching to get out on the ice I know my myself for a while there I was looking like man we're going to be on some really early ice the way the weather was but you know I think we're going to kind of maybe be in there for a couple weeks before we can get out there safely and You know, hopefully by the time people are listening to that or to this podcast, we're maybe scratching that itch and getting out there. But, um, any, um, any advice for maybe somebody that's listening, you know, like you said, first time people trying to get out, what would be kind of your advice to someone getting into the sport?
4: Well, I think, I think I would probably just start with, you know, I personally, I was, I guess I would call myself a self-taught ice fisherman. My, my family didn't really ice fish or summer fish really for that matter. Um, so I did a lot of research online before I did any fishing. You know, I I spent a lot of time first looking at the map and and studying what lakes are near me that I could potentially drive to and go fish. And then I would go to the DNR website and I would study the, the uh, net results and see if it's worth fishing that lake first before going out there, because there's nothing worse than, especially as a new angler, going out to a lake and putting in all that time and effort and not catching anything. So if you can find those lakes that have a higher percentage chance of actually catching fish uh, i think you'll probably a get into the sport more and enjoy it more and and b there's nothing nothing that can can zero in those skills of catching fish like catching fish and seeing what's working so um i think those would be the first steps that i would that i would take uh, and then after that you know whether you're gonna invest the money in buying some some products to be able to get yourself out on the lake and be fishing or find a friend or borrow them or whatever you need to do to be able to get that equipment to to be able to go out.
1: And like let's, borrow and steal. Yeah <laughs> borrow and steal. And let's not forget, guys, if if, if we have folks listening to the podcast or, or watching this here, who are quarantining, right? Because I know that's kind of the the process. We went through it here earlier this fall, late summer. And and you sit there with two weeks, and and you've got to isolate. You've got to you know just be in your home, and and it, you know the outdoors are, are things we can do while we're quarantining if we can plan it out where we're not interacting and and exposing ourselves to other people. But let's not overlook the fact that there's some great resources, and and you sort of touched on that, Mike. You know the 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 data resources resources that you talked about, and and then you take it uh, on another avenue, and you have past episodes of Shack Talk you've got past seasons of fish addiction TV. You've got, got folks like, uh, like Jay Siemens out there this year. He did that, that 10 part series on YouTube of the guide to ice fishing. And, and I'm looking here at, uh, some of the meat eater guys in their fur hat tour that they started this year. Yeah. A lot of those are entertaining, but you watch a, a couple of episodes of of Anthony uh, uh, along with Mike Olson on on the Fish Addiction show, and and you're going to have a good time watching it. But you're going to learn some stuff too.
4: Yeah, for sure. I would. I would, That's a great point. That you know, like you said, those all those shows are very entertaining. But if you pay attention, you can really pick up on some of those some of those things that they're doing and using to uh, be successful in in catching fish
2: let's be honest with the, you know, the lack of entertainment on TV these days. I mean, I know myself, I've been watching way more YouTube than I did previously. Um, You know, I enjoy watching those shows, but I've really, you know, found a lot of different things maybe that I want to spend as much time watching. So if you're like me um, and you're looking for those types of things, you know, do some searching out there, you know, reach out to us. We'll point you in the right direction for some of those shows or some of our favorites. And I mean, there's endless resources out there for people to, to utilize. And, like Mike pointed to, I mean, just do some research, you know, if there are questions that you have or reach out to us, reach out to anyone. I, I think a lot of people in the outdoors um, are more willing to share and get people outside and everybody just needs to kind of band together in this crazy times that we're having now and get everybody outdoors and do it safely. And hopefully we'll get through this ice season and things will be maybe in the rear view mirror a little bit. Mike, if uh, people want to get a hold of you, is there um, easy way to do that? To uh, reach out to you on social media?
4: Yeah, I'm very active on social media for sure. Facebook and Instagram, um, obviously those are those are great great resources. Um, the Brewer Ager Outdoors website or or their Facebook or Instagram page. I I also stay very active on those as well. So
2: awesome well again thanks everyone thanks mike for joining us Uh, we have to thank eskimo for for sponsoring the podcast without them we wouldn't be able to do this and share you know a little bit of our stories with all of you and, and a little bit of mike's story with everyone so again make sure to uh get outside you know be safe distance socially out on the ice and get out fishing and we'll uh we'll catch you on the next episode